everyone. This is the Unorthodoxy Podcast. My name is Duncan Rayburn, and here we are at the penultimate episode in our series on a murdered god and an exiled queen. Owing to various things in my own life, things have been so busy that I haven't gotten around to recording this until now. Uh, so I am a bit late in releasing this episode, but anyway, here you go. In the previous episodes, I've been dwelling on historical shifts in theology that have led to, or at least contributed to, what Nietzsche referred to as the death of God, and what I'm referring to as the exile of the queen of the sciences, namely theology. But as we move towards a conclusion, I want to begin again to stress the personal dimension of all of this. I started this series with the idea that we are all philosophical detectives, And the point of any form of philosophical detection is that in the end, it is the detective who is the most altered by the journey. While Duns Scotus and William of Ockham ushered in a range of theological fragments at the expense of the whole, maybe we've all done that to a certain extent, and maybe some of what I've gone through in this series has helped you to think a bit about that possibility. What ideas have you come up with? or adopted, that have shifted your beliefs towards unbelief. We may not be able to account for every possible shift of the tectonic plates of history, but we can gain some clarity about the shifts we ourselves have experienced and undergone. To speak of belief in God becoming untenable, and more catastrophically of God having been murdered, is to speak of the fact that all of us, because we live in the wake and the midst of modernity, are likely to be affected by the death of God at some point or at various points in our lives. We all know what it's like to have the queen of the sciences go into exile. I'm reminded of that brilliant poem, Dover Beach, by Matthew Arnold, which he wrote in the mid-1800s. In that poem, Arnold, standing on Dover Beach in England, writes about the sea of faith being at low tide, where once it was full, which is a tamer way of talking about the death of God. Of course, a distinction needs to be made between faith and theology, although I've kept them pretty entangled in this series because I do think that they are always, to some extent, entangled. And my argument has been that bad theology pretty predictably sets up flimsy faith. An atheist once told me, for instance, that she once had an experience of God, but her entire worldview was set up to explain the experience away. For her, God was not God, but the aggregate of a series of neurological misfirings. No faith resulted. As this example suggests, to trust in that which is more ultimate than being itself today is a radical act of defying where history has taken us. It is, in a way, to cease to be at the mercy of fashionable ideas, even if only because there is an intimation of something, even just the possibility of something, outside of the system of human temporality. To find grounding in that which transcends ourselves, rather than in our own experience, is highly subversive. Also, to find a sense of unity when many of the discourses and discussions today promote fragmentation, is rather defiant. It seems strange that religious orthodoxy, which involves genuine spiritual awareness rather than mere fundamentalist commitments, has become the most rebellious thing imaginable in some quarters. At its best, 
this rebellion against ideological fashion is an example of what you might call a second innocence, which is innocence on the other side of experience, or even belief on the other side of unbelief. Part of why I've taken you on this journey in the way that I have is to set up a kind of defamiliarization. In other words, I've wanted to help you to notice that many obvious things are not really obvious. The things we take as obvious can even be wrong. If the death of God has become obvious, it ought to be questioned, if only because things we take for granted are seldom articulated and properly understood. We will never understand everything, of course. We all have, as C.S. Lewis points out, five senses, an incurably abstract intellect, a haphazardly selective memory, a set of preconceptions and assumptions so numerous that we can never even examine more than a minority of them, never become even conscious of them all. How much of total reality can such an apparatus let through? I guess the answer is, if we're awake testing and questioning things, seeking reasonable answers and so on, enough will get through. But for enough to get through, we need to have some sense of our own attention management. That is, we need to know how we are directing our attention and filtering the world. So that's the thing I want to talk about here. When new ideas emerge in history, the world is filtered differently. People start to pay attention to different things. Any words I say will direct your awareness towards one set of categories and not another. This is an amazing thing when you think about it. Think of the famous metaphor of rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. It's a great example of what it means to pay attention to one thing, that is rearranging deck chairs, when something far more important is happening, that is, The Titanic is sinking. Well, this is a bit like what happened in theology with the advent of those ideas I've already discussed, which participated in the birthing of modernity. It's not that it's wrong to rearrange your theological deck chairs, but when your faith is being sunk because you're arranging your theological deck chairs, maybe it's time to rethink your strategy. In other words, it's time to check your particular mode of attunement to reality. What are you paying attention to? This is a question I often ask myself. Well, I want to briefly look at how the framework of modernity somewhat manages our attention before shifting my focus to the theological notion of eschatology. On the one hand, modernity has involved something of a collapse of larger ideas into smaller ones. For this reason, modernity in this way is less anti-Christian than it is a kind of Christian heresy. The idea of focusing on deck chairs instead of the ship we're actually riding on is instructive here, since it shows the shift of attention from a larger thing to a smaller thing, from the whole to a part. Modernity offers a way of looking at things that is, by its very nature, smaller than the original meta-story and meta-theology offered by Christianity. Modernity, with its emphasis on university, nominalism, voluntarism, and representational knowledge, tends to take the coal out of the fire, so to speak, and then refuses the possibility that there even is a fire that the original coal came from. Of course, this is framed in modernity itself as highly positive via what is known as the myth of progress. 
Losing faith is a small price to pay, well, for some, since much good has come from focusing on rearranging all of our theological deck chairs. And, of course, they've been rearranged in such a way that we no longer notice that they are, in fact, theological deck chairs. It's not difficult to see the progress that moderns see because a lot really has improved. Although there is also, in all of this improvement, a very strong sense that entropy is going to finally win the day. The more we reduce the universe to a collective of ontologically unsupported components, the quicker we are to realize that everything is returning to nothing. Unconsciously, many sociopolitical visions in the world begin to imitate this return to nothing. Both capitalism and communism seek perpetual expansion, for instance, the way that a dying star expands before creating a black hole. Both capitalism and communism are forms of nihilism, which is the unconscious or shadow side of modern progress. Or one of them, at least. Because of this, many of the loudest voices in the world today, in political terms, are not to be interpreted as the voices of the powerful, but as the voices of those who are particularly terrified of their own impending non-existence. Think of all the yelling as the death throes of dying ideologies and fearful ideologues. My question here is, how should we navigate this odd combination of progress and entropy in the modern view of human destiny? The thing I want to argue is that we are all invited by the Judeo-Christian tradition, that is, by both the Jewish view of the world and the Christian supplement to that, into a vision of things that doesn't pick the cynical pessimism of entropic degeneration or the naive optimism of mere progress. Rather, it transcends and includes both. It would be able to do this because it is bigger than both. The modern inclusion of both progression and entropy is something we should expect, since it is a Christian heresy. But there is another way of managing our attention that sees things less in terms of what is happening while we passively observe, and more in terms of how we ought as individuals to take responsibility for our own attending to reality. Human beings have always inevitably generated their own eschatology, meaning they've come up with their own theories of human destiny. Eschatology, quite simply put, is about what all of this stuff human beings are up to amounts to in the context of what the cosmos amounts to. You probably have your own sense of where we're all headed in this global village, and then there's the personal aspect to all of this. Where do you think you're going? Eschatology is as much a private matter as it is cosmic, as much a matter of how we see the world as it is a matter of what will happen in actual fact. When you consider where humanity is going, a large part of that will include your hopes about where your own life is taking you. There are different ways you could think of eschatology, but my focus here is going to be on eschatology in terms of attitudes towards the meaning of history and human destiny. Broadly speaking, there's the tragic attitude and the comic attitude. I'm tipping my hat to Aristotle on this, obviously, who figured that there are two dominant ways of plotting a story. There's the tragic and the comic. Peter Lightheart's take on eschatology also informs this. I actually met Peter a few weeks ago when he was visiting South Africa, which was rather lovely. Anyway, to clarify, when you think of human and cosmic destiny in degenerative terms, when 
everything is just going downhill towards a kind of terrible end. Well, that's tragic. It's all faith, love, and then entropy. Entropy being the main thing. But if you think of everything headed towards some ultimate good, well, then you have a much more comic view. In tragedy, there can be a lot of comedy and much good, but the ending determines the real meaning of the thing. Commonly, a lot of people end up dying. Sometimes everybody dies, as in the movie Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. In comedy, though, there can be a lot of tragedy, but in the end, all is well. Often, as Lord Byron noted, a lot of people get married uh, at the end of a comedy. Comedy is very nicely summed up in a line from the movie The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, which I really enjoyed. Everything will be all right in the end. If it's not all right, it is not yet the end. Endless variations on both tragedy and comedy are possible, and sometimes we might get the two confused if we're not paying attention. Most people would say that historically political Marxists have had a more comic view, but history has revealed that often what people have regarded in theory as utopia can end up being highly dystopian in reality. I've been reading Daniel Calder's very funny and hugely informative book, Dictator Literature. I say it's funny, but it's actually got a major edge of tragedy to it. Um, in that book, Calder offers some pretty potent insights into what happens when the ideal picked by megalomaniacs ends up working against reality rather than with it. Interestingly enough, often the tragic eschatology is built into the worldview of various utopians. What they perceive as a way to make things better is rooted in a deeply cynical view of people and the world. Vladimir Lenin is a frightening example of this. Actually, he, he actively hated what people were. And so he set up his entire regime on, on the premise that people could be improved. People's you know, human nature could be different than what it was. So his apparently comic view, you know, that things would edge towards this Marxist utopia, uh, involved the hope that people in their current form would be destroyed. And most of us would regard that as more tragic than comic. I think most of us who are sane, at least. I think there is some wisdom in that amazing film, Synecdoche, New York, which is also a tragedy, incidentally enough. There's a claim there that the end is always built into the beginning. How you think about the start will greatly shape how things will end. What is fairly remarkable is that the Judeo-Christian tradition clearly sides with the comic, but without the outright hatred of humanity that you find in the history of totalitarianisms like fascism, Nazism, and communism. In the Judeo-Christian stream, the beginning has everything created be declared good by God. And after much pain, suffering, and mayhem, everything ends up not just good, but better than it was in the beginning. The tragic in life is not ignored, but factored in. And this is done not so that we can become victims of a new victimocracy, but so that we are confronted with a choice. And the choice is always this. What kind of future do you want to be a part of? And what kind of future do you want to make happen? This is not Hegelian or Marxian determinism in the least. If everything ends up good, it is because people participate in the life of the divine to make it good. Redemption in any form is not the result of passivity, but a combination of faithfulness to the divine reality and faithful attunement to the gift of being. 
uh, as an aside, this is not something I plan to say, but I think it is an interesting idea. Uh, the idea of making grace so predominant that works become completely irrelevant creates a theology of passivity. Uh, you have to always passively receive, which, I mean, there are there are certainly benefits to that, but I think that's one of the conditions in Protestant theology that sets up the postmodern emphasis on passivity when it comes to ethics. That is a massive subject, and I probably am committing some kind of crime by just bringing it up. Anyway, keep all of this in mind as we go back to the scriptures to explain what I mean by the Judeo-Christian comic story. In Genesis, human beings start off in a garden. In Revelation, they end up in a city. And in Genesis, creation progresses from good to very good, with creation culminating not in the creation of Adam, but in the creation of Eve. Reading the story tragically has led some people to think that Eve is second and therefore worse, but the scriptures are progressive in in a very particular sense, not necessarily in the contemporary political sense. Eve arrives on the scene after Adam as his glory, or as the culmination of his being, and together, participating in the divine eros, they are able to make more people, the children are the glory of their parents. And there's always this sense permeating the scriptures of things moving towards something that should be better. It is only a denial of the comic that results in people assuming that whatever comes later is worse. Keeping with this theme, Jesus is written about by Paul as the second Adam, meaning human 2.0, an even better picture of what it means to be human someone we can emulate to become even more than what we are, and in whose resurrection is the promise, whether you take it literally or allegorically or sacramentally, of a life more abundant than even the various abundances that we experience now. And even after Jesus' resurrection, the New Testament picture is not that Jesus merely gets his old body back, but that he gets a brand new body. So, you see, the biblical picture is when man is found in communion with God, which is what Jesus restores, we are made even more fully alive. But then, what do we do with all the entropy? It's certainly a question that's been bothering me. Well, this is where another pattern in Genesis needs to be noted. It is a pattern of descent. What starts off as the creation of abstractions and containers, God making light out of darkness, splitting light and darkness up, making land and water, and splitting them up and filling them, etc., ends with the content of those abstractions and containers, and then ends with vulnerable, naked human bodies in the midst of everything. We've talked about universals, but here we have a, a biblical picture of a universal, or universals, being filled with particulars. If only philosophers and political philosophers would notice this. The point of the abstraction, the point of the abstraction is to get to the particular and to ground it, not to negate it. This pattern is then echoed in the incarnation. God descends to take on the body of a man. And we should note how immensely subversive this idea is in human history. God descends. The idea, which is expressed especially in Philippians 2, is that God is humble. Even if you struggle to accept the reality of God, it's a beautiful idea. It reflects the wisdom of the ages. 
God takes on a body like yours and mine with all of its proneness to disease and awkwardness and beauty and wonder. God descends always throughout the biblical narrative. Heaven becomes earth. The incarnation is perfectly congruent with the pattern of everything that happens before. God in the scriptures becomes ever more intimate with human beings as the story continues. And I think that's a wonderful symbol of spiritual growth in all of us, if ever there was one. Um, I think a lot of the, the worst sort of crimes against our own spirituality are, are committed in favor of merely ascending. What we have in, in biblical imagery is that God enters the muck of life, not to show us how to get higher or to show us how to escape our embodiedness, but to demonstrate how to get lower. If God takes on flesh, well, then so can we, at the expense of all of our Gnostic aspirations. Heaven, as Chesterton says, is under the earth. God is the ground of our being. This is one thing that modernity gets horribly wrong. It says that we need to ascend as much as we can because it'll end in tears and annihilation. Modernity embraces the ascent but postpones the descent. The picture in the scriptures is very different. Descent comes first because, to quote Radiohead, down is the new up. You deny yourself, you lose your life in order to find yourself and gain life. You can look at the lives of people who ascend without accepting descent as part of the way forward and you'll notice that unconsciously they tend to adopt many rather destructive and self-destructive forms of descent. There are those stories of celebrities, for instance, who overdo the parties, drugs, sex, inebriation, addictions, materialism and so on, and then other stories of priests and pastors who get caught with their pants down. All of this is symbolic of a, a very stark over-identification with the body. It is the manifestation of an unconscious over-identification with the body that results from failing to know how to descend. It would be simpler if we could say that all of these fallen people and idols are just depraved, which is what a lot of people do, and they make it out to be that way in the media. But the more complex truth is that they're normal people just like you and me who have been held up too highly as symbols of ascent and transcendence. And so they've tried to live up to the symbol that they've become, but without properly learning how to embrace their own finitude, their own limitations. Destructive and self-destructive patterns manifest in people who find themselves raised too high or who raise themselves up too high. Oddly enough, especially in the case of celebrities, it's their descent, or false descending, you could call it that, that people often emulate. I think we all know on some level that humility is the path to wisdom, but it's not always easy to seek genuine humility, and so we end up picking humiliation instead. We even humiliate ourselves as a kind of compensation for overinflating ourselves or being overly inflated by others. Or, as is inevitable, life will beat us up until we learn that the, the cracks and fractures in everything allow light to get in. Carl Jung suggests that we need to willingly embrace the descent to counterbalance our aspirations, because repressing descent will inevitably manifest that very descent in the world. If we do not make the unconscious conscious, it will rule us, and we will call it fate. 
Jung also has this fantastic statement that, that for a tree to reach up to heaven, its roots need to be planted in hell. In other words, there needs to be a profound acknowledgement of the darkness within us for us to be able to aspire to uh, great, truly greater things rather than just the, the counterfeit form uh, that resembles greater things. With this in mind, we may even begin to see some good in the theological shifts that I've argued are steps in the wrong direction. Don't get me wrong, I still think there are steps in the wrong direction, but maybe such shifts expose the unconscious wishes that many of us have about God. Univocity exposes our unconscious desire to have God be less intimate. Nominalism exposes an un. Nominalism exposes an unconscious desire to have the world be perfectly controllable through language. Voluntarism exposes an unconscious wish to have God be so powerful that he can call a spade an onion and make it so. And representational knowledge exposes an unconscious desire to have our picture of the world be more absolute and more important than the world itself. Acknowledging these possibilities is a bit like acknowledging those parts of ourselves we want to deny and repress. We can accept that our ego does not account for the full picture. And maybe sometimes even bad theology can be a portal to higher things. I think many of the wrong steps I've taken theologically have actually helped me find a better way forward. It's not to say that those things are fantastic, but that in really reflecting on them, um, I've actually... I think, arrived at a better perspective on things. The writer St. Paul says it in this way in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 16, and I think you can take this symbolically as well as literally. He says, Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Imagine looking at all the horrible stuff we go through, all the wrong steps we take with those theological goggles. It's not to deny difficult things or to deny our failures, but to acknowledge that they may have had a part to play in shaping us into better selves. Richard Raw quite brilliantly says that two things will transform us, which I'm taking here to mean that there are two ways to descend. The first is great love, and second, great suffering. And both of these work together with awe and acceptance, which we naturally want to resist. Both great love and great suffering involve self-emptying. Both involve humility and both involve the full recognition of our fragility. But the transformation depends on one thing, pure acceptance. If there's a single thing I spot in the various problematic theological trajectories that I've covered in this series, as well as in my own life, it is their emergence out of a refusal to trust in the ultimate wholeness of things. One way of thinking which requires us to adopt acceptance is replaced by a way of thinking that demands our greater control. Control is often something we use to maintain a particular self-image or ego, and it can be detrimental to us, having an integrated sense of both self and the world. What we are left with in our controlling, which is a form of attention management, is a deeper sense of separation, which is the word that Paul Tillich offers as a more contemporary word for what we typically call sin. The more we control, the more we feel cut off, and that just means that we feel more at the mercy of everything. The way that this is overcome is through a moment, or better, a lifetime of grace, which is pure acceptance. We find 
that as we trust in the ultimate wholeness of things and move towards that promise of wholeness, we are put back together. We do not lay claim to that wholeness, though it is more as if we find ourselves claimed and held within that wholeness. But we are still striving for it. I think that's the, there's a kind of fantastic dance between our, our responsibility and what we are open to receiving. Tillich writes the following on this. I think this is a beautiful passage, so I'm just going to read you the whole thing. He says, Sometimes at that moment a wave of light breaks into our darkness, and it is as though a voice were saying, You are accepted. You are accepted. Accepted by that which is greater than you, and the name of which you do not know. Do not ask for the name now. Perhaps you will find it later. Do not try to do anything now. Perhaps later you will do much. Do not seek for anything. Do not perform anything. Do not intend anything. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted. If that happens to us, we experience grace. After such an experience, we may not be better than before and we may not believe more than before, but everything is transformed. In that moment, grace conquers sin. And reconciliation bridges the gulf of estrangement, and nothing is demanded of this experience, no religious or moral or intellectual presupposition, nothing but acceptance. Acceptance here is not merely a passive posture. It is a, a radical openness to otherness, and I think that's, that's what helps us to, to move forward. And it is remarkable. Strangely enough, solving the case we're working on, which is part of solving the meaning of life itself, is less about fighting the death of God or the exile of the Queen than we may naturally think it is. Maybe this is all part of the plan, that theology itself has to descend and fail in a way so that we can experience a loss of faith. One way to handle this is to adopt that very Enneotype 4 theology of Peter Rollins, um, which endlessly dwells on the loss of God, endlessly recapitulating Holy Saturday without fully allowing for the possibility of Resurrection Sunday. I see great benefit in that uh, kind of theology, but I, I think it is very limited in, in a number of other ways. Another way to handle all of this, though, is to expect that we can move through our various losses towards something truly transformative. In the end, as much as we may struggle to believe it, there is a life beyond all of our theological pitfalls and existential struggles. So in the next episode, as I close off this series, and who knows, that episode may only arrive in January, I will talk a little bit about my own theological journey, and especially about how the death of God and the exile of the Queen have been followed by the resurrection of God and the return of the Queen. I will also, just to keep you in the loop, speak a bit about where I see this podcast going in 2019. I'm really thrilled about all kinds of things that are ahead of us and I can only hope that this will be of some encouragement to you as you seek to descend into that terrifying realm of pure acceptance. <laughs>